I'm Angela Kenneke, and welcome to Grieving Out Loud. When we decide to share our talents, it's like giving a gift to others. You know what's beautiful? It often brings us a blessing in return. Today's guest, Debbie Evans, is using her artistic talents in a way she never could have imagined. I draw pictures of Jamie, all his angel friends now. And who are his angel friends? He's got like 2,000. I got the chance to meet Debbie a few weeks ago when we joined hundreds of people in Washington, D.C., all coming together to raise awareness about the fentanyl crisis. Unfortunately, Debbie and I share a bond we wish we didn't. Both of us have experienced the devastating loss of a child to fentanyl. I've decided to leverage my background in journalism to create a podcast and write blogs that shed light on our nation's drug epidemic. Debbie has chosen to offer support to people like me who are grieving the loss of a loved one by creating lasting memorials of their children. When I met you, we had never met before, and you saw a picture of my daughter and you said what? That I know her, she's in my pictures. A lot of moms ask me, request, can my child be on your picture? And then there's some that I just see them and something touches me. And she was so beautiful. So beautiful, yeah. yeah. I just thought, yeah. She's going to be one of it. She'd been in all of them since I saw her. In this episode of Grieving Out Loud, hear how Debbie's art is doing something pretty amazing. It's not just helping people cope with their grief. It's also shining a light on one of the biggest issues today in the United States, the drug epidemic, which sadly takes more than 111,000 lives each year. That's 305 a day. We really hope this episode leaves you feeling both informed and motivated to use your own talents to make a difference. Well, Debbie, let's just start from the beginning and tell me a little bit about Jamie. Like, what kind of kid was he? Jamie was very intelligent, spoke his own mind on any subject. I mean, that's just the way he was. He'd tell you exactly what he thought. He was really good with computers. In eighth grade, he put his own computer together. He loved deck hockey. He loved the Washington Capitals. His urn is a Washington Capitals urn that my daughter found for us. He was funny. He had this little gift in his walk that I just loved. He had so many friends. And everybody that knew him just loved him. He would help anybody. I know everybody says that, but he really would. There was a boy that came to his celebration of life that I hadn't met. And he told me that he had known Jamie when they were like little. And he ran into him through a mutual friend when they'd gotten older. He got put in jail, that boy. And he said, Jamie wrote me a letter, came up, put money on my commissary sent me puzzles, pictures. He said he was the only one that did anything for me when I was in jail. That's the way Jamie was. Jamie experienced something very traumatic as a teenager, right? Yeah. Tell me what happened. Oh, that was horrible. When he was 16, he walked up to the shopping center like he usually does. He worked there, too, at Brittany's. And he was going to the pet store that day to get a mouse because he had a pet snake. And then he cut through the woods like he always did. 
behind the bank, and there were woods back then. They're gone now. And this guy followed him into the woods, pulled a gun on him, and told him, give me your money and your drugs. Jamie didn't do drugs. So Jamie took his wallet out and threw it on the ground. Guy said, what's in the bag? And he said, a mouse. And the guy got mad. And he put the gun here on his neck, shot him, and it licked his jugular, went down his chest, licked his lung, and out his back. He was in the hospital a month. Well, he almost died that night and sort his heart stopped three times. And he was 16. 16. He turned 17 in the hospital. Anyway, he finally got better. What year was this? I think it was 2002. 2002. What kind of health problems or mental problems or physical problems or what? Oh, he had nightmares. Um, Was he in a lot of pain? Yeah. Trouble breathing. More than two decades have passed since her son was shot. You can still hear and feel the pain in Debbie's voice. Of course you can. This marked the beginning of a harrowing journey filled with unrelentless stress and anguish as she fought for her little boy. I'm sorry. That's all right. Just take a deep breath. Yeah, he had nightmares, screaming. What strikes me is how painful this is for you to talk about even after all these years, right? It's not easier. It never gets any easier. Oh, I miss him. You miss him. I was the one that was always there for him, always trying to help him. I put him in rehab three times with what I could afford. I was a waitress at a hostess. Jamie's journey involved several attempts at rehab, countless tears, and an overwhelming load of pain, all starting with doctors prescribing him Oxycontin for pain management after a gunshot. So he's 16 years old, and he's prescribed pain pills. Did you know that was going to be a problem? No, I had no idea. You don't know. Well, especially back in 2002, 2003, how were you to know? I had no idea. According to the CDC, the first wave of America's drug crisis began with the surge in opioid prescriptions during the 1990s. The FDA had approved Purdue Pharma's powerful drug, OxyContin, and from 1997 to 2002, OxyContin prescriptions skyrocketed from 670,000 to 6.2 million. While many remained unaware of the turmoil spreading across the nation, an unexpected hero emerged in the form of Dan Schneider, a pharmacist living in New Orleans. People that sell oxycontin bullshit not addictive, but I knew that was bullshit. You knew it. That's recently started addiction. Because the pharmaceutical companies were saying it was not addictive. That was their sell. Doctors were buying that crap. In 2000, Schneider began investigating the alarming increase in Oxycontin prescriptions driven by the tragedy of his son's own death. This investigation led him to collaborate with the FBI, DEA, and various authorities in pursuit of bringing down doctors who were prescribing 
excessive amounts of this pain medication. Dan's remarkable journey is now the central focus of a Netflix docuseries titled The Pharmacist. I had the privilege of sitting down with him for a couple of episodes of Grieving Out Loud. Well, all my patients have been telling me that this doctor's open at 2 o'clock in the morning and there's hundreds of people out there. Whoa. So I don't believe them, but they got to be exaggerated. I, I got to see. Okay. People are doctor shopping. Yeah, they're bad doctors, but they're bad pharmacists out there too because, you know, maybe they can justify filling the prescription from, for a patient that's been in their store. But we had a little network in my community. There was no pharmacy monitoring program at the time. But some of the better pharmacists sometimes would call and say, look, this patient just came in. Did you also fill a similar prescription? Sometimes we catch people that were actually doctor shop. Unfortunately, efforts from people like Schneider were too late for hundreds of thousands of Americans, including Debbie's son, Jamie. I thought he's coming home. That's all I thought was yeah, everything will be okay now. Yeah, when did you know that the pain pills were a problem? Well, right after he got home, he um, was acting weird. So we called 911. Well, the paramedics came. Jamie was laying on the floor. His dad was straddling him because Jamie didn't want to go back to the hospital. And he was kicking his feet. And his dad was sitting on him trying to calm him down. The police come. This one officer walked around where he was kicking his feet. He could have gone any other way. But he went where he's kicking his feet and he got kicked. And Jamie couldn't even see him because my husband was straddling. And he goes, okay, that's it. You're under arrest for assault on a police officer. And I'm like, what? I was like, we called you to help. My son just got out of the hospital. My daughter was on the step crying. And he walked over and maced him in the face. I mean, really bad. And I'm like, we called you to help because we didn't know what was wrong with him. We almost lost him. And I said, who's in charge? And I went out and talked to him. And he's like, he kicked him. And I said, well, he couldn't see him. He walked right where his feet were kicking. So he was arrested then? Yeah. They arrested him. What was he, 17? Oh. And did you know it was the painkillers causing him to he be? He taken it whole, the whole body. That's why he was acting weird. Do you know why he took the whole bottle? No, I don't. We didn't really know that he was into drugs for a while. He think things are just isolated incidents like that. You know, yeah. why did you take all your pills? He was doing drugs, and we didn't know it. You know, and then by the time we found out deep into his addiction, found out later this boy across the street, that was a good friend of Jamie's growing up, had an older brother, was a heroin addict. We didn't know that. His mother didn't tell us that. He told Jamie, how'd you like to make some money, give me a ride? And I was told, driving him to work. Well, he was driving him to D.C. by heroin. And he got Jamie started on heroin. Do you think that he switched from the pills to the heroin because he couldn't get the pills anymore? Yeah. Like, just like that typical thing that we yeah, always hear? And how long did he suffer with substance use disorder? 18. 18 years. Do you think that any of this would have happened if he hadn't been prescribed the painkillers no, at age 16? I mean, I know he, he'd still be here. 
he was anti-drug. He would tell me everything, even things I did not want to hear. <laughs> At 16, 16 year old boy. Yeah. yeah. He would come home and hey, you know, so-and-so do some pop. I keep telling him not to. What kind of toll did this take on you? Because it he's doing drugs, he's in and out of jail or whatever's happening. Chaos, chaos is happening. It was really hard. You didn't know from one day to the next if he was going to kick a hole in the wall and be normal. No, it's all what I didn't go sell. No, but he just thought he could self-medicate. He, he used to see me crying. Your mom, all right? No, worried all the time. Every time he left the house, I'd be sitting there waiting for when he come home. You know, wondering what he's doing. It's so hard. It's so hard, and I understand because I worried all the time too about my daughter and. It- like this dark cloud that's following you around. When one of your children, something is wrong with one of your kids and you know it, it's like a dark cloud for a mom. It really is. Really is. Truly, really is. Even though Jamie struggled for nearly two decades with substance use disorder, Debbie did see signs of hope, especially right before her son died. He had just gotten a job with an old friend, an electrician. He loved it. He was doing really good. You could see the difference in him that he got with this old friend. Jamie brought to the hell, and I said, get him out of here. I won't say my exact words, but I said, get him out of here. And James said, oh, come on, Moral. No. You knew that it was trouble. Told Jamie, stay away from him. But Jamie was loyal, and he went to elementary school with this boy. You know, they've been friends all whole And I was mad at him, so I wasn't talking to him. Now I wish I had been. But how would Debbie have known that it was the last time she would see her son alive? According to Debbie, Jamie had accompanied an old friend to D.C., where the friend bought what he believed to be heroin for Jamie. Tragically, It turned out to be a deadly dose of fentanyl. That night, Debbie got the phone call from a detective with the devastating news of her son's death. To make matters worse, Debbie says she felt very judged by the detective, who stated her son was a drug addict and he had brought it upon himself. March 19th, 2020. 2020. And he was? 34. 34. And I mean, he struggled. He tried. Everybody at rehab loved him. He loved rehab. So many people from rehab drove like two and a half hours, two hours to come to the celebration of life. Tell me story how he helped them. No, it's all what they didn't go sell. No. If you could rewrite this script, if you could go back and wave a magic wand and rewrite this script, what would you do? What would you, what would you have I different? shopping center. You would have picked him up from the shopping center so he never would have been shot in the first place. Because in my mind, that guy, he didn't do drugs until I shot him in the hospital. So he killed too. What about the doctors and the medical professionals that prescribed this for your son when he was 16? Well, he got him from the hospital and then he started going to psychiatrists. Do you blame 
the medical profession? Well, yeah, for not letting me know he could become addicted to drugs. Because I would have done everything differently. You know, I mean, I would have watched him. I would have. If you would have had the knowledge, would have, could have, should have. But you did the best you could with what you knew at the time. I didn't know. No, nobody knew. Nobody was being honest about these pain medications back then. No. I mean, I knew the drugs were strong. You know, he he even told me, Mom, I love the way they make you feel. Well, that's why people do drugs, because they make people feel good. I mean, he's in a hospital. I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, that's cool. Oh, in the hospital, he was saying that. You're supposed to make you feel good. Mm. You know, I I didn't think that when he came home, I I thought he'll come home, things will go back to normal. Things never went back to normal. No, it just got worse and worse and Worse. worse. Have you lost a loved one to overdose or fentanyl poisoning? I'd like to invite you to share their story on our new Emily's Hope Memorial website called More Than Just a Number. They were our children, siblings, cousins, husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, and friends. So much more than just a number. You can submit a memorial today on morethanjustanumber.org. I'm so sorry for everything that you've been through and for the loss of your son, Jamie. I have seen now with my own eyes how you honor him. And I have to say, I'm blown away. You are quite the artist. Oh, thank you. I've had to work at it. And work Debbie has. Not only has art become therapeutic for her during her grieving process, but she's also raising awareness about the fentanyl epidemic. People across the nation are gaining a deeper understanding of the devastation fentanyl is causing through her drawings, which depict Jamie alongside others who have died from the powerful synthetic opioid. I draw pictures of Jamie, all his angel friends have been now. And who are his angel friends? Oh, no, he's got like 2,000. So just people, and when I met you, we had never met before. And you saw a picture of my daughter and you said what? That I know her. She's in my pictures. A lot of moms ask me, request, can my child be on your picture? And then there's some that I just see them and something touches me. And she was so beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. She just, I just thought, yeah, she's going to be one of my She'd been in all of them since I saw her. So you draw these pictures, and they're very well done. Thank Have you always been artistic? Where did you get this ability? I, I was artistic, but like I said, I couldn't draw face. And I wanted to draw janky. But, you know, I just kept working at it. Like even Karen, my friend out there, today, she said, I think you're getting better. I said, yeah, I think you're right. I think I am. So you draw these pictures in there. It's, it's not just a little picture. It's a... Uh, they're huge. They're huge. And what's happening in the pictures? Like Jamie's birthday party. His birthday in heaven. Yes. Birthday in heaven. Because he would have been 37. Is that right? Last year, I did an ice hockey birthday party because he liked ice hockey so much. He was a capital fan. From fun birthday parties to Jamie's favorite bacon cheeseburger feasts, Debbie's artwork covers a wide range of scenes. In these drawings, she captures her son doing the things he enjoyed most, surrounded by others who lost their lives to fentanyl. 
Some of these pieces even have more than 2,000 faces in them. Emily was an artist. Maybe that's why she resonated with you, because she was an artist. And you have, so there you got bacon cheeseburgers and hockey and people doing all kinds of things. Yeah. And does this help you? Yes. How? It just gives me something to do for Jenny. Debbie's art isn't only a loving remembrance of her own child, it's also a source of comfort for parents across the U.S. Her work caught the attention of thousands during my time in D.C. It also proudly hangs in public places, like the executive mansion in her home state of Virginia. So you're not only helping yourself. All the moms say, he survives. He survives. Any little bit of happiness for just a moment. Just a moment of happiness. No, just anything. Somebody remembers your child. Well, thank you for all the beautiful drawings you do. Thank you for drawing Emily. I'm just so honored that you just saw her picture. Like I said, we didn't even know each other. And you drew her into the big collages that you're doing. And we're going to put pictures of your drawings online with this podcast. And we'll have links in the show notes so people can check them out too. And thank you for sharing Jamie's story. Thank you for spending your precious time with us. Please join us next week on Grieving Out Loud for a touching conversation with the father of an internationally known social media star who had amassed millions of online followers. Unfortunately, his life was cut short at just 19 because of fentanyl. He was struggling with what every kid probably goes through when they grow up, trying to figure out who they are and their self-identity as they're maturing and going through puberty, like, where do I fit in, you know, with my friends? You know, and then there's what I'm supposed to fit into, like, I'm supposed to go to school, you know, we're gonna go to college, and, you know, you gotta go to USC, because that's what everybody does around, particularly where we grew up. And so, sometimes fitting in that box is challenging for kids. And I see other kids now in my neighborhood where they don't fit in that box, and they struggle, they internalize it. And what they all want to do is they want to have somebody to talk to about it. And they don't know how to ask for that because mental health is regarded as a stigma. Hear Harold Noriega's advice for parents and kids who are navigating mental health, substance use disorder, and today's dangerous illicit drug supply. It's an episode I think will leave you enlightened and empowered to make a difference. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Wishing you faith, hope, and courage. This podcast is produced by Casey Wannenberg King and Anna Fye.